schoolgirl who got C's in French and thought she wasn't cut out to learn languages is today an American bilingual who has helped send Latino kids to top universities and helped bring beautiful Spanish tiles to American homes. That was Sean Pratt reading from Chapter 17 of America's Bilingual Century. And who was this schoolgirl? She's Lorna Auerbach, one of seven adult bilinguals you'll meet in this chapter. What they all have in common is that they found their where, where their adopted language will live in their life, although in very different ways. I'm Steve Levine, founder of the America the Bilingual Project and author of America's Bilingual Century. Welcome to episode 49 of our podcast, where you'll hear another chapter of my book, read by the award-winning narrator, Sean Pratt. If you caught our previous podcast, you might recall that it was about how important it is to find where in your life your new language will live. Now you're about to meet some people who found those places and through them, found their voice as bilinguals. Here's Sean to tell the story. Chapter 17. Finding Where In the first chapter, I suggested you think about where your new language will live in your life. It's a question only you can answer. But I can share the stories of a few people who have found those places for themselves. Lorna Auerbach, whom we met briefly earlier, grew up in Los Angeles and studied French from middle school into college. But, Lorna told me, she always struggled with the language. I found the grammar daunting, and I continually got C's, and I don't get C's. She told me her attitude about studying languages was, It never has benefited me, and I can't see how it ever can. Plus, Lorna thought there was something wrong with her, that she just couldn't learn another language. That idea was soon to change. After college, Lorna joined a program in Israel to teach English as a second language. She was enrolled in Ulpan, the immersion method designed to absorb Israeli immigrants into the language and culture. Her fellow participants were from countries scattered throughout the world. It was kind of like being in Babylon, and our only common language was Hebrew, she said. The experience did the trick for Lorna. At the end of eight or twelve weeks, I was speaking fluent Hebrew, even with its different alphabet and reading right to left. It was a revelation for her. Maybe there was nothing wrong with me, she thought. Unlike the French classes she had in the U.S., in Ulpan, you had to learn in order to survive. She learned something else that year in Israel. I realized I loved teaching. She returned to Los Angeles, got her graduate degree in teaching at UCLA, and then applied for a job with a Los Angeles school district. They sent me to Roosevelt High School in East L.A., which is all Latino. Lorna started as a substitute teacher and learned that she could earn more by becoming certified as a bilingual teacher. Having the confidence now that she could learn another language, Lorna set her sights on learning Spanish, and she attacked the challenge with gusto. There was a total immersion summer course at USC, and I signed up, Lorna said. We had one hour a day in conversation group, a second hour in grammar and writing, 
and a third hour in a lab with individualized learning. That was the easy part. For the second half of the summer, she went to Toluca, Mexico, to live with a family that didn't speak English. We took classes and went on tours, all in Spanish, she said. Lorna's Spanish took off. Returning home, Lorna continued with extension classes at UCLA at night. Her growing proficiency allowed her to get more involved with her students and their parents. I was on a mission to get their children into top universities, she said. She signed up to lead educational trips to Mexico, which she did over Christmas and in the summers. And she signed up to teach English at night to Latino gardeners and housekeepers. I talked to them in Spanish during breaks. Lorna dove into the language headfirst. I'd listened to Spanish radio all the time in the car and loved traveling to Mexico. Whenever I made an effort to speak, they were really grateful and complimented me, and all this positive feedback made me want to learn more. Lorna was enjoying being a bilingual teacher, but her life was about to change again. Her father, who had founded a real estate firm, was in failing health and had not made any succession plans for his business. Lorna realized that she would have to learn some basics about it, at the very least, so I could communicate with lawyers and accountants or things would be a mess for my mother. She took a one-year leave from teaching. It may as well have been a foreign language, she said of her father's world and its real estate terminology. I used to go home crying. Just as with French, I thought, I'm never going to learn this. But learn it she did. When I met Lorna, she was already a longtime member of the International Group of Company Presidents, YPO, having successfully run the business her father started and taking it to new heights. But what of her Spanish? I can speak really fast and my vocabulary is constantly improving, she told me. Part of the reason is that she reads Spanish newspapers. But the big reason is that Lorna found a way to bring her Spanish into her second career in business. She discovered the most beautiful tiles made by artisans in Spain and decided to import them for her own construction jobs and sell them to other developers. She was able to travel to Spain on business. She loved the human connection and the dear friends she made in the small companies there. She employed a team of bilinguals to manage the website and take sales. Lorna found where her adopted language would live in her life, in her first career in education, and in her second career in business. Her Spanish came with her and took Lorna to places she could not have imagined earlier in her life. The schoolgirl who got C's in French and thought she wasn't cut out to learn languages is today an American bilingual who has helped send Latino kids to top universities and helped bring beautiful Spanish tiles to American homes. The language allows you an entree to get closer, to interpret that society from other people in a way that you couldn't if you didn't speak the language. That's what Calvin Sims told me about his 20 years as an international correspondent for the New York Times. Twice the newspaper sent him to intensive language learning sessions before his postings. He first learned Spanish for his assignments in Latin America, where he lived for six years. Then he was assigned to Japan. Recalling his Japanese training, he said, It was very difficult. He started with six hours of language study during the day, with a new Japanese instructor every hour, 
followed by four hours of homework. You'd suffer the next day if you didn't get your homework done. The time and effort paid off. My Japanese was really good. I learned 3,000 kanji, or Japanese characters, so I could read, as they say, at the Time magazine level. He felt well prepared when he arrived at the Times offices in Tokyo until he started speaking. They said, You speak like a woman. Calvin was taken aback. Then he remembered that all his instructors were women. They said, Your Japanese is good, but you need to say it this way because you're a man. Japanese women tend to speak in a very polite manner, whereas men speak more gruffly. A lot of time in Japan, you felt like you were on another planet, Calvin added. Nothing is written in English. Everything is pristine. There is no crime. And you go there and are able to function and to understand, to be Japanese. From a humanistic point of view, it's a pretty incredible thing. Calvin avoided the expat trap by taking the time to talk to local people, including playing soccer in the park near his apartment. I felt comfortable with everyday people, having conversations with friends. But things were different in interviews. The Times office would send interpreters with Calvin just to make sure there wasn't a problem. Sometimes I would ask a question in perfect Japanese, but my subject would look to the interpreter, who would say the same thing. I think the subject found it hard to believe that an American could really speak Japanese, so they wanted to hear the question spoken by the Japanese interpreter. I heard the same from Anand Gopal, the author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. He didn't know Farsi before going to Afghanistan and learned it by immersion. He said his understanding of the language was essential to the reporting he did for the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor. When reporters don't speak the local language, it can be just too much of a barrier for their reporting. That's what Evan Osnos discovered when he was stationed in Iraq but didn't know Arabic. He told me he finally left because he felt he wasn't getting beneath the surface, as if there were a scrim between him and his subjects. But, Evan did have a background in Chinese, from studying it in college and having spent two summers in China. That skill helped him get hired as the China correspondent for the New Yorker. His Chinese became good enough to do his own interviews, although he would take an interpreter with him if the subject was technical or if the regional dialects were too different. His book, Age of Ambition Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China, won the National Book Award. Calvin Sims left the Times to become a program officer for the Ford Foundation. Then, in 2014, he became president of International House, a venerable institution that houses international students attending universities in the New York City area. When I went to interview Calvin at International House, I was curious about how much he uses his Spanish and Japanese in his current role. Before I got a chance to ask him, He began speaking Spanish to staff members we met as we walked around the campus. I saw their faces light up. Spanish is very useful here because about 40% of our staff speak Spanish. It's an instant connection with them. He gets less opportunity to speak Japanese, but had just a few days earlier when he got in the elevator at International House with a Japanese woman and her two children. Do you speak Japanese? 
he asked in the language. The woman was shocked, Calvin said. Calvin also uses the language with some of his Japanese board members and says his Japanese gets better at galas and other social events when we can have a drink together. Language teachers have told me they often see changes in their students when they begin to express themselves in another language. Middlebury Language School's Dean Stephen Snyder says, when you are removed from your familiar framework, you're forced essentially to recreate your identity as a different person in the new language. Language guru Steve Kaufman tells his readers that it is important to let go of the security of your native language and culture and broaden your identity. That's just what Kate Crochelle did. I was probably eight or nine when I took my first French class, she told me. I was just obsessed with France. The Parisian love story really captured me, and I loved the French culture, the food, the wine. I just got swept up. I was the obnoxious person in French class in high school who had raised their hand at every question. Kate went to Bowdoin College in Maine, where she majored in French and film studies and studied abroad for a year in Paris. We signed a contract that said we couldn't speak any English, even with our fellow American peers, she said. And she didn't. After graduation, Kate landed a one-year teaching assistant job at a French university. She imagined that she might marry a European guy, a guy who wore tight jeans and scarves. But then she described what she called the beginning of the end. First off were the French visa restrictions that made it very difficult for an American to find permanent work in France. Then, her French boyfriend broke up with her, two days before she flew home to visit her parents. I remember crying on the plane home and just being kind of a mess, she says. But it gave her time to reflect. Maybe France wasn't to be. So, she applied to four or five different graduate programs in Europe and was accepted to one in Copenhagen, where she worked on a master's degree in film studies. She practiced some Danish with the Rosetta Stone software, but on her second day in Copenhagen, she went into a grocery store and realized things were not going to be simple. She didn't even know what some of the items were. I saw the words and had no idea how to pronounce them or what things cost. Fortunately, the Danish government offers up to two years of free Danish lessons to residents who don't speak it. It's safe to say that had I not done that program, I would not be fluent in Danish. It took me about a year and a half to pass the fluency test. At the same time, she was reflecting on her personal life. That image I had about marrying a European man and settling there and having kids, it wasn't really resonating. Then I just kind of fell for this woman and couldn't stop it. So that was when I sort of decided to let it fly. Denmark legalized same-sex registered partnerships in 1989. Kate says, The Danes tend to be a little more accepting of the way you want to live your life. I don't think I would have had the courage to come out as early as I did in the States. Kate's story illustrates that on the journey of finding where your adopted language may live in your life, you may find your own identity or enlarge it. It may help you find your sexual identity and as it has for millions of Americans, it may help you find your ethnic identity. Millions of immigrants to America, as well as their children and grandchildren, 
have had to negotiate a hybrid identity somewhere between the cultures they came from and American culture. This negotiation is inherently filled with tension and has been expressed in autobiographical novels such as Jean Kwok's Girl in Translation and memoirs such as Leila Lalami's Conditional Citizens. Andrew Herman's grandmother spoke Spanish, but his mother did not. Andrew took Spanish in school and, in a case more common in America than it used to be, reclaimed his heritage language. He had study abroad experiences in Costa Rica and Spain. Andrew would eventually pursue a career building American businesses in Latin America and started his own companies there, in which his Spanish was a critical skill. But before he did this, something unusual happened in his early years after college. I was a track athlete in college, Andrew told me. His sport was race walking, not all that common in the U.S., but popular in Europe and Latin America. He became friendly with some of the members of the Spanish national team. To give you context, the coach was Jose Marin, and his team was filled with world and Olympic champions. There was no way the Spanish team would have invited me if I didn't know the language and hadn't showed such an interest. Andrew trained with the team for two years. That got my Spanish going, he said, and his race walking too. Andrew went to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, and although he didn't qualify beyond the trials, the overall experience was amazing, he said. I was an Olympic athlete. His adopted language launched his Olympic experience. Today, Americans are establishing beachheads for where the language of their elders will live in their lives. This isn't through any rejection of English, but through an embracing of bilingualism. As Eric Liu writes in his memoir, titled A Chinaman's Chance, heritage and identity, the two are often conflated, spoken of interchangeably, but in fact distinct. One is the chrysalis, the other the butterfly, one seed, the other fruit. The first is insurance against risk. The second is risk. Even if we provide for everyone a suitable heritage, we have only barely begun to acknowledge the full flowering possibility of identity. On a typical bright, cloudless day in the high desert of Carson City, Nevada, the sunlight streamed through the modern stained glass windows of St. Teresa of Avila Catholic Church, where I had come to hear a bilingual Mass. Even though I was not a parishioner, and am not even Catholic, I marveled at what a welcoming place this church was. Father Chuck Duarte, the pastor, was celebrating the Mass. He raised his arms in welcome and began to speak, first in English and then in Spanish, offering greetings and blessings you could understand in both languages, even if you thought you knew only one. Rather than translating, he was alternating. Dios and God, Christos and Christ, Alma and Soul. After the Mass, I went out into the large, airy vestibule and watched Father Chuck greet his parishioners. He looked to be in his fifties and had a ready and sincere smile. He clearly knew his congregation and the language they spoke with more comfort. He would speak to some parents in English and their kids in Spanish and then the other way around with other families. With a long greeting line and his various conversations with families, it was an hour before he could duck into the small conference room adjoining his office, where I had a chance to hear his language biography. 
I started Spanish in high school and was going to minor in Spanish in college, but we were supposed to read novels, and it was too hard, he said. Besides, he added, it's hard to learn a language in class. But when he entered the seminary, we were expected to learn Spanish because it's the fastest growing part of the church. Without it, we would be older and shrinking. When he came to St. Teresa's, Father Chuck noticed something about the Latino families. The parents were more comfortable in Spanish, but the kids were more comfortable in English. I want to encourage and invite the parents to learn English, but also respect the language they pray in, he said. As for the children, they understood their parents' Spanish, but answered in English. I tell them to answer their parents in Spanish, that it's important to keep it up. I asked Father Chuck if people ever say he's encouraging Latinos not to learn English. Yes, we have people who complain and say they should learn English, like our parents and grandparents. He told me he believes all Americans should learn English, but that they are also free to pray in whatever language they are comfortable with. I find the Spanish language beautiful. I love how it sounds, Father Chuck told me. But not until he began using the language in his work did his bilingual life really blossom. There are some who say that Mass should be either in Spanish or English. The changing between the two interferes with the praying. But I don't see it that way, he said. And, judging from what I had witnessed, neither do those who come here to worship. Father Chuck found where his adopted language would live. His Spanish lives hand in hand with his English. Within his own faith and inside St. Teresa of Avila Church. If you like what you're hearing with these audio clips, you'll find links to where you can buy the book as an audio book or as an e-book or print on the book page of the America the Bilingual website. You'll also find more excerpts and free downloads of a couple of chapters. That's americathebilingual.com forward slash book. The subtitle of America's Bilingual Century is How Americans Are Giving the Gift of Bilingualism to Themselves, Their Loved Ones, and Their Country. In our next episode, Sean will be reading the chapter titled Giving the Gift to Our Loved Ones. We hope you'll join us. My thanks to the America the Bilingual Project team, including Caroline Dowdy, our audio and digital book maven, Fernando Hernandez and his production house, Esto No Es Radio, who provides sound design and mixing, Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, Carlos Plaza, our creative director, and Carla Hernandez at Darumatech, who manages our website, americathebilingual.com. I invite you to follow America the Bilingual on Facebook, along with the Lead with Languages campaign run by our friends at ACFL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. Thanks for listening for America the Bilingual. This is Steve Levine. (music) ¶¶